Hi, welcome to Sessions with Bob and Lena. I'm Bob Gordon. And I'm Lena Jarhali, and this episode is The Polyvagal Theory, Befriending Your Nervous System. And today we have a special guest who is going to tell us all about polyvagal theory. And her name is Haley Hoffman. She is a licensed psychotherapist here in Washington, D.C. And she does a lot more than just that. So we want to give Haley the floor to tell us all the cool things she's doing in therapy and anything else you want to tell people, Haley. So welcome, Haley. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So a little bit of my background, I am a certified Imago Relationship Therapist. I am also certified to offer the Getting the Love You Want workshop, as well as the Keeping the Love You Find workshop. One is for couples and the other is for individuals. Um, I am also um, uh, doing ongoing education in sex therapy and ongoing education in um, somatic therapy. And in that world of somatic therapy, I um, discovered polyvagal theory. And so I spent the last year doing a training to become a polyvagal informed therapist. And because of, of the, the theory in polyvagal blending so beautifully with what we do in Imago, it just felt like a marriage made in heaven for me. That's great. Haley, why do you say, let, by way of starting right off, um, what about polyvagal theory makes it such a good match with imago relationship theory, which we've talked a little bit about in the past, but just, yeah. just to, if you could, in your, as you answer this question, say just a little bit about what imago is for anybody that hasn't heard us say it yet. Okay, so uh, Imago Relationship Therapy is um, work that we do using a very particular structure. And in that structure, we are, are inviting our couples to have a safe place in which they can have those difficult conversations. And the structure helps to keep the, the space between them safe. And so one of the things that we invite couples to be aware of is how they can co-regulate with each other. We know that co-regulation is the first language that an infant learns, and it is part of, of an infant's attachment development. And in polyvagal, I'm, I'm sorry, in Imago th therapy, attachment is the very first developmental stage in which we are forming how we are going to be in relationship for the rest of our lives. And so in polyvagal theory, we say that, that our nervous systems require three things in order to be regulated. One is choice, the other is connection, and then we have co-regulation. And co-regulation, again, there we have that word from Imago and that word in polyvagal, is this idea that my nervous system feels safe enough to be with your nervous system. So in Imago, we often say that, you know, we are, are um, these two people who have been attracted to each other from un in unconscious ways. And in polyvagal theory, I say we are actually two nervous systems that are attracted to each other in unconscious ways. And it sounds like um, with polyvagal, this could be accessible to everybody, or is there also a component of it that's very geared towards people who have experienced trauma? Can you say a little bit more about who polyvagal is for and who it's geared towards? So I would say yes and yes, okay? Mm -hmm. It is 
absolutely geared for everybody in that everybody has a nervous system. And so all of us are flipping back and forth between our parasympathetic branch of our nervous system and our sympathetic branch of our nervous system every time we breathe in and breathe out. Okay, the inward breath is our sympathetic and the outward breath is our parasympathetic. The parasympathetic manages sort of two ways of us being in the world. One is our socially engaged being in the world, that that sense of safety, our ability to um, have uh, curiosity and multiple opportunities or multiple possibilities. And the other way is that rest and restore which is when our system needs to shut down, restore, refill, do whatever. It's, it's um, something that you would see during digestion, that we digest best when we're in that parasympathetic state of rest and restore. So people who experience trauma tend to get caught in a sympathetic place in which they are re-experiencing over and over again a physically embodied experience that gets them stuck in fight or flight, okay? And when what they do in that sympathetic fight or flight state doesn't resolve the the feeling that they're having in their nervous system, they try something else. And when that doesn't work, they try something else. And instead of having those possibilities and options to choose from, as we see at that safe place, the people that are stuck in sympathetic, when, when those single opportunities that they try don't work, then they slide down into this place of, again, parasympathetic rest and restore. But it can also look like collapse. Like, I just need to just get out of here so that I can recover from this or be safe. So everybody goes back and forth between that parasympathetic and sympathetic. Everybody goes into their fight or flight multiple times all day long. But some people get stuck there. Amy, before we go too much further, for our lay folks, because I remember when I was not that long ago, maybe 25 years or something, which isn't that long for me, um, I was confused by the word sympathetic and parasympathetic. What do, what's, the, what's the main thing we need to know about why you're saying sympathetic and parasympathetic? So parasympathetic is the idea of being able to release the energy out and sympathetic is is the bringing energy into your system. One is not good and the other bad. Again, every time you breathe in and out, you flip back and forth between the parasympathetic and the sympathetic. So that sympathetic, which we um, sort of attach to this idea of fight or flight, that sympathetic state of fight or flight is a moment when our nervous system is saying we need energy in our system to respond to what's going on in this situation. So either that energy, we take oxygen in so that whatever um, hormones, it would be cortisol and adrenaline that are starting to be produced in our body can get sent to where they need to be sent. If it's fight, it tends to go into our chest and our arms so that we're armed to fight. And if it's flight, then it tends to go into our trunk and our legs so that we can get the heck out of Dodge. So thank you. So let's now go to um, polyvagal theory 101. Um, 
can, can I ask first for people who, you know, want to learn more or for people who want to know, well, why should I listen to any of this? What, and maybe you'll talk about this later, but a question I've got on my, on my little parking lot list is, do we know, uh, is there an evidence-based polyvagal theory? Like, how do we know it works for what, and what do we use it for? In, in, in the clinical setting, in the counseling room? Sure. So polyvagal theory came into being uh, in 1995 when Dr. Stephen Porges first started doing work around here. And he, he had, by 95, he had done enough work to come to a conclusion that this is what he understood to be going on in the nervous system. And so he is a, a, um, research, a neuroscience researcher and so much of his work has been around what is going on so that people are able to have social engagement. And social engagement essentially um, begins with the cues that we give to other people from our face. It's, it's our tone. It's the, the cant of our head. It's the um, squint around our eyes. It's the way that we hear things. And so when we are in a socially engaged place, we are able to send and receive cues to people that can co-regulate, can invite engagement, can, can invite other people to um, turn towards us as it were, okay? Talking about, not just talking about casual kinds of social engagement, we're talking about like mom to child, uh, partner to partner, all sorts of social interaction, correct? Everything. Everything from the person who hands you your coffee to the person that you wake up with in the morning. It, it, every kind of very subtle, very nuanced cue that we say, I am safe. Please come towards me. Okay? And, and we are fundamentally wired as mammals, as human beings, to be in connection. The problem is we are also wired for survival and our survival wiring predates our connection wiring. The connection wiring, it is based on, on the prefrontal cortex, the left prefrontal cortex is the most recently evolved part of the brain, okay? So in polyvagal theory, what we're really inviting people to do is to rewire so that their natural inclination or their natural bias towards self-protection or survival can be replaced by the same biological desire, but for connection. The, the difference is when in distress, do I turn away from you? Or when in distress, do I turn toward you? And why does John or Jane Doe need to know any of this? How, how, how is it useful? So you're doing it. Whether or not you know it, you're doing it all day long. I want you to think about a moment where you walk into the kitchen and you're fixing yourself a cup of coffee and somebody startles you or something gets your attention and you turn and you drop the coffee cup. And now there's a broken mug, there's coffee all over the place, you don't have coffee, all of these things. The way in which you naturally respond to that situation, because it just happened, it's just it just is. The way in which you naturally respond begins to form the way in which you start to think about yourself. So I'm, I'm going to just say, imagine that there is an event and that event was, I made myself a cup of coffee and then I dropped my coffee. 
The moment your, your nervous system detects that something has happened that is perhaps bad or dangerous, your body begins to present, produce some sort of a hormone. Okay, so again, cortisol or adrenaline are, are the typical hormones. As soon as your body begins to produce those hormones, you have an emotional response. There tends to be that we have a behavior that follows that emotional response. If my er emotional response is to be um, shaming and blaming towards myself and to be irritated and angry, then the behavior that comes after that might be that I start you know, slamming things around or I start um, having a, a negative inner conversation about myself and, and say a swear word or something like that. After that, so we've got the event, we've got the cortisol and the adrenaline, we've got the emotion, we've got the behavior, and then comes the story. The story in that moment is, I am such an idiot. How could I have done that? That was so careless. Why am I so stupid? That story always follows the state that we're in. And in a sympathetic state, that's how I behave. The only way to change it, because we as humans really come to be conscious of this at the point of the story. That's the point where we've arrived and are like, ah, this is what's going on. The way to interrupt that is to be able to get in ahead of it. And so the average person wants to know this so that they can become mindfully aware. So you can befriend your nervous system and recognize that this is not a bad thing. This is not the end of the world. I'm not a bad person. This just happened. And so now what do I need to do to calm my nervous system, to regulate it so that I don't get stuck in this place of reinforcing an idea of me being, you know, a useless, worthless person. So I think this is a, a very wonderful spot to, to, to stop and say what other sorts of, you know, sympathetic nervous system responses, or shall we say negative nervous system responses, uh, we uh, call out for us to be able to use this knowledge wisely. So you've mentioned one, I spill something, I could, I, one of the things I've read about the male of the species is when, when, a, when something startles us, we tend to react almost instantaneously with anger or rage. So I could go off on the person I'm in the kitchen with, like, why the hell did you, blah, 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 blah. or what other settings uh, or events, contexts would, it, would this be most useful in, in terms of our daily interactions? So let's, let's, Imagine that your nervous system is arranged in a hierarchical way, and we're going to put it on a ladder, okay? And at the top of the ladder, you have what we would call your socially engaged parasympathetic state, okay? And so at that top of the ladder, there's, there's a fancy clinical name for it. It's called ventral vagal, okay? And so at the top of the ladder, you're in that, that socially engaged, safe place. And that is what we would, would like to call for everybody everybody's home. That's where everybody wants to be. We want to be able to engage with people when we want to engage with them. We want to be able to, to be comfortable with what we're doing, feel good about ourselves, and have a good story that we're telling. As you run into events in your life, you start to move down that ladder. And you might like just dip into the first rung of that fight or flight sympathetic place. And that might just be when you're irritable or you're just discontent, okay? And so the idea here is, do I do anything to move myself out of that? Or do I you know, pitch a tent here with my irritability and find out what's going on, 
Like just spend a little moment there and say, I'm okay. As long as that doesn't pull me further down the ladder, I'm okay with doing that. Okay. But if whatever is happening, I get stuck in that place or I get pulled further down the ladder more towards anger or rage or fear, anxiety, those are all going to show up in, in this place of, of sympathetic, that if I have to do something that causes me a great deal of anxiety, then, then I'm absolutely going to be energized and wanting to do something to make that feeling stop. And, and again, as I do what I do and it doesn't work, I move down the ladder. And so now I'm in the zone of depression and, and loneliness and isolation, okay? So if you deal with any of these things, either on a regular basis throughout your day or chronically that you're stuck in one of those places of, of depression or anxiety or a trauma that shows up for you over and over again and prevents you from, from getting on with your life, living your life on life's terms. If you are in experiencing any of those, by befriending your nervous system, you begin to create a, an actual map, a pathway that leads you back up the ladder because you cannot get to the bottom of the ladder without going through that sympathetic fight or flight place. And you cannot get to the top of the ladder without going through that sympathetic fight or flight place. So I want everybody to really hear that sympathetic isn't bad. It's just bringing energy in. And sometimes it brings energy in in the interest of survival, and sometimes it brings energy in in the interest of pulling us back up out of the bottom of our ladder. So I have a couple of questions, Haley. Um, the first one, I have two. The first one is, has there been any research done on people who are experiencing ongoing repeated trauma? Because I imagine it would be really hard to come down the ladder Say if you're in a situation, you know, in a, in a situation where you live with an abuser, or I, I'm sure that they haven't done this with people in, you know, where they're constantly facing war, that, that might be a little too extreme. But do you know anything about um, this work being done with people who are unfortunately in repeated traumatic situations? So at the moment, everything that I'm aware of is experiential, that there are a lot of people that are taking it out there. And because Dr. Porges is a researcher, he's collecting as much information from the experiential so that they can make decisions about where to focus the next research on the, this. Um, in terms of uh, much of his research has been done with children, particularly children on the um, uh, autism spectrum. Um, because that is such a clear example of people having an inability to um, exchange both send and receive social cues. Mm, that's very helpful because I think um, a lot of our listeners may have that concern, you know, maybe with an autistic child. So that's helpful yeah. that you mentioned that. Um, my so, second, oh, sorry, go ahead. So I'm just going to say as a little aside, one of the things that Dr. Porges has done is developed a tool called the Safe and Sound Protocol that is specifically designed to exercise your nervous system so that you can reset it, so that you can sort of say, if you've been dysregulated and you just can't get out of it, this is designed to reset you so that you can start from a fresh place. And, and my second question goes back to survival which we know is important. And, you know, as therapists, we tell our clients, it is important to have anger, sometimes rage, anxiety, because they're giving us a clue about something. Yeah. And that we have those emotions for a reason. And sometimes that is self-protection. You know, we talk about gut feelings, 
you know, telling us something that we need to know to protect ourselves. And I'm thinking of this book that a lot of clients have heard me talk about over the years, but it's called The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker, who is a former, I guess, FBI criminal profiler. And he, he sort of talks about what you're talking about, but without really using the, the sympathetic nervous system language. But he's saying, you know, you don't want to live in a heightened state of fear, but you also don't want to live to the point where you're not recognizing your anxiety or danger. So, you know, we talk about if you're in an alley, at a dark alley, and you see a dog coming at you, baring his teeth, if you didn't have an anxious response, you would just go towards the dog and pet it. But, you know, the, the anxiety about seeing a dog baring its teeth alerts you to danger. And so he's saying that it's not healthy to live in, you know, a constant state of anticipating danger, because that is also not a good place. That, that's when you'll overestimate danger. Yeah. But you don't want to live in a sort of la-da-da, totally I'm safe place all the time. But the place you want to be is sort of what he says, secret service agents are trained to not be in a heightened state of anxiety, but to also be alert and to sort of think about that as when you're driving a car and it's not a stressful situation like Bob yesterday at stuck on 270 bumper to bumper, but you know, it's like relaxed, listening to your favorite music, but still having to be aware, you know, of stop signs and things like that. So I wonder if polyvagal theory addresses again, um, like you said, it's okay to sort of go towards more of the bottom of the ladder, but yeah, how do we kind of welcome all these feelings? What's the, what's the ideal state to be in? Does polyvagal address any of this? So, you know, polyvagal would say that we probably all want to be at the top of our ladder in that safely engaged place, but we all also probably have a home away from home, a place that we recognize is that's the place that I go. I, I remember when I first did my um, earliest training with Deb Dana, because I, I did do my training with Deb Dana, and Deb Dana has several books that she's put out, but one of them was particularly um, for using polyvagal therapy for clinicians, and then she developed a master course for clinicians to actually be able to study with her. And the first time that I um, did a training with her, she walked us through the process of doing what she calls mapping your nervous system. And I got to the part where I'm supposed to be mapping my um, bottom of my ladder, what we would call um, our dorsal vagal state, okay? And when I'm at the bottom of my ladder, and I was like blank, I, I thought, I, I got nothing. I don't know what this is. I don't ever do this. I don't, I don't know what they're talking about. I got nothing. And then as I continued to do the work over the course of the next few months, um, I, I was with Deb at some point and, and she said something to me about, um, you know, people who faint, that's like the most classic way of going to your dorsal vagal because they've literally said, I'm going to check out now. Mm. And I was like, oh my God, are you kidding? Because I'm somebody who faints and I faint easily. I faint all of the time. I faint so much that I say to people, I'm going to faint and I've never hurt myself because people always catch me when I'm going to faint. And I thought, how did I miss that? How did I not understand that that was, was, you know, my home away from home. And the more that I've gotten to befriend it, to look at it and go, oh, what's that all about? It has revealed so much for me. So the idea here is to, to not like want to be one place all the time, but to know that I have 
tools to move through my nervous system if I need to move through my nervous system. It's not that, that any one of these states is bad because again, that bottom of the ladder is also rest and restore. It's the state that people get into when they meditate. That's, that's like the, the really true sense of I can feel completely safe and I can dial everything down. So, so one, one problematic area at the bottom of the pyramid would be what I've heard called a, a dorsal vagal collapse or shutdown. You just said collapse. So yeah. for the people we see are, are in a state of dissociation or either get in that state or are stuck in a state of like, so I guess that one extreme example is dissociative identity disorder uh, it, or, or depersonalization disorder, or derealization disorder, where people are in a kind of a dorsal system collapse, but uh, they're almost dysfunctional, almost non-functional. Well, fainting yeah. is about as non-functional as you can get, but I'm thinking about what some trauma writers have called, you know, the last resort. Um, you know, when, when, when the animals, when the prey is caught by the predator, the last resort is kind of leave your body. Yes, play dead. Play dead, yeah. And so at the worst, you've got people with a still alive consciousness whose nervous system is playing dead, uh, which can in itself be terrifying to people at least. Absolutely, absolutely. And this is the part where you start to map. You start to sit very gently say, what is the very smallest step up the ladder you could make in this moment. And we always start with breathing and movement. You want to ask that, that, that client, and really in a, in, a, in a therapy situation, we would be talking about this when the client was not in the state, but inviting them to bring into their awareness themselves in the state. Okay, so that you could start to build tools with them. And so then you would say, what's the very smallest step that you could make that would take you that would bring energy back to you? And, you know, people often start with some sort of a breathing that helps them to shorten their their in breath and lengthen their out breath. And so you begin to clear out the oxygen in the lungs that are it's carrying too much CO2. It's carrying, it's moving um, that uh, stress horn, hormone is probably an overload of cortisol in the system at the moment, because once you've burned through the adrenaline of fight or flight, now your system is stuck with your stress hormone. That's just, how do I get it out of there? And so we want to breathe it out because that's how we get everything out of our system is through breathing. So you said breathing out oxygen. Did you mean breathing out air? So it is this process of you breathe in through your nose and you are trying to empty your lungs, get all of that oxygen out of your lungs. Okay. Okay. Just want to make and sure. then you breathe in again. And, you know, often we say breathe out like you're breathing through a very small straw. Again, so much of this work you want to do when you're not activated, but that when you can actually bring into your awareness a time when you were. Mm. 
so that you can then go back and replay it. And so there are all kinds of things that, that you know, straws, I think, are really good for people to own a lot of straws and breathe through straws. Um, I have a small tool that is like a, a little metal tube that looks like a straw that hangs on a necklace. And, and, you know, I can carry that around and try breathing through that. I often say to people, get a harmonica. It, it, you know, when you're breathing in and out on a harmonica, it, it helps you to pay attention to like, what does my out breath sound like? What does my in breath sound like? And just gets you breathing in a whole nother way. So breathe all, there are a million ways that we can say, let's try breathing like this. How does that feel? Does that feel appealing to your nervous system or not? Has polyvagal theory given you any new insight about what causes a panic attack or an anxiety attack? So again, you're going to start with this idea that in polyvagal theory, we have this concept of neuroception. This is a word that, that Dr. Porges um, coined, and it means that your, your nervous system, unbeknownst to your brain, has detected that there is some sort of a cue of danger. Now, because we all have histories, that cue of danger may or may not actually be dangerous. And so sometimes we get a mismatch and we get this cue that there's that danger when it's not actually dangerous. Sometimes it's effective in saying that's danger and we take the steps that we need to do to, to get ourselves back towards safety. So your nervous system in the situation of a panic attack has detected that there's some, sense, some sort of danger that is out there. And again, the sooner you can recognize the state that you're in, the sooner you can start to say, what do I do in this state to regulate my nervous system? And breathing and movement are always going to be where we start. So Right. So kind of like if you can calm the body, you can calm the mind, which is, yeah, I think, was that Bessel van der Kolk? I, if it wasn't, um, I can't remember. But, but yes, yeah, that's sort of the whole premise of trauma. Well, yeah. You have to calm the body first. And the way we might start to do that is through breathing. Or is that the only way to do it, really? Uh, so breathing, I mean, sure, people do it through medication. Um, well, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, but, when we're in that activated state, though, right? And and so really what you want to do is is you have to determine whether or not you've got adrenaline and you've got cortisol running through your system. Which one do you need to deal with? And sometimes what you need to do with the adrenaline is to actually burn it off. So like five minutes of really hard, fast aerobic exercise, anything you can do to get your heart rate up can force you to start breathing in a way that will help you to regulate. Mm -hmm. okay? Right. okay. And so in that fight or flight state, you may have the energy to do that. Down there in the dorsal vagal collapse, you probably couldn't say to yourself, I should get up and run, run in place for five minutes right now. Right. That, that would be really a hard reach. Right. So, um, so if we are in that state at the very bottom of the ladder, what do, you, what do you tell clients? Like, what do you do then? You just kind of wait a little till you're a little bit higher. And So I actually want to really find out from them, like, what is possible? And, and I have done this with clients where, you know, again, sometimes you find that they get into that state while you're in a, a session. And so we're going to just start by slowing down. That's the other thing that, that, that I want to say. Amago, we say this over and over again. And in polyvagal, we say this over and over again. Slow down. If you want to get anywhere, slow down. 
So you start by slowing everything down. And, you know, if you have been working with a client and been able to start to develop some tools with them, then you can pick up on those tools. You can remind them. Let's, let's visit your SIFT. A SIFT is a a very particular exercise that we do that um, helps you to envision yourself in your safely um, engaged state. And, and we try and titrate back and forth. If the client is saying, I'm I'm having a panic attack and we say, well, let's just go visit your SIFT for 20 seconds. So we give them 20 seconds and then the client would indicate to me that, okay, I'm there. And then I say to them, let's come back and visit this panic moment again for 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. And so they go back there and they just feel it for 20 seconds. And at 20 seconds, I said, okay, I'm going to invite you back to your SIFT. Mm -hmm. And then I say, let's stay there for 40 seconds. And then we'll go back to the panic place for 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. And then we'll go back to the SIFT for 60 seconds. And then we'll check and see, how's that panic place now? And, and most of the time, what I have as an experience is they're like, oh, it's not so bad. I can be there. Mm-hmm. Because the panic, it serves a purpose. It's, it's valuable. And that's what I really want clients to hear is they're not broken. In fact, they are amazing biological beings that are doing exactly what they're supposed to do. It's just that they don't feel like they have any sense of control over it. They don't feel like they have any ability to manage it. And so if we can get to the point where you're like, I know what this is, and now I know what to do, then you, it's not that you have to fix it. It's that you have to be able to know that you're not going to be stuck there. I can go back and forth between these two things. You're, just, just, you're kind of describing... Um, you know, what seemed equivalent to sort of 20th century people and their brain and their new parts of their brain with Stone Age or more brains. So in terms of, you know, the amount of people that come into our office that are, that uh, are depressed. Um, And so what you're saying is their, their reptilian brain is, is creating an effect in their nervous system designed to protect them from something, but their new brain is in there going, why am I so depressed? What drug do I need to take? Yeah. What, what do you think, because so many of our clients do suffer from depression, what do you think depression is trying to tell the person? If that oh, makes- yeah. That's an interesting question, Bob. Let me think for just a second about that. What do I think depression is trying to tell the client from a polyvagal perspective. It's for me to imagine what a panic slash anxiety attack is trying to tell me that whether a thought entered my mind or there was some trigger, you know, like with PTSD, a, a truck backfires and it reminds me of an explosion. That's easier to see um, than waking up in the middle of the night, say, with a panic attack. Was it a dream? Was it something I ate, you know, or depression? which seems so difficult uh, to, to mediate sometimes. So it's interesting. I, I actually failed to say to you that the other place that I spend a lot of my time is in 12-step recovery work. And the place that, that I find that crosses over with all of this is the powerlessness. And I, I believe that depression is an expression of powerlessness. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, 
coincides with the bottom of the ladder in that dorsal vagal of, I can't do anything. It's pointless. There's nothing that will change anything. And, and so when we think of the polyvagal, you go into that, that reactivity, that fight or flight, that rage, that anger, that flight piece of, you know, I got to get out of here when there's energy in the system. And when that doesn't work, we start to slip down the ladder. And so the likelihood of when what I was doing wasn't working and I slipped down the ladder, then I fall into this place of collapse. And when I get stuck there, that's, that's how I have been conceiving of my clients in depre- who are stuck in depression. So the depression might in effect be saying, well, you're powerless. Yeah, that's what I think. And then I might respond, if I'm using polyvagal theory, how might I respond to that? So again, the story that I tell myself Mm -hmm. is that I am powerless because I am stuck in that dorsal vagal. And so remember I said, the story always follows the state. Mm -hmm. But if I had the exact same situation and I was not already in this biological state of collapse, I would tell a different story. So the, the goal here is to get out of that state so that I can tell that different story. So my example is, I want you to think of something that you do that is mildly irritating. And when, when I suggest this to clients. I do is irritating. <laughs> so something that you do that's mildly irritating to you. Right. So like I stub my foot on the stairs routinely because I don't pick up my feet and I find that to be mildly irritating. Or as soon as I've been introduced to people, I forget their name. And so now I turn around and I'm like, I can't remember their name. Okay. And so think of something that you do that's mildly irritating. Oh, like right now. Um, Yeah. I, I, a a trait or, or a particular behavior. A behavior, a trait. I mean, forgetting I'm, is probably a trait. Stubbing I'm, is. And I'm sloppy. Okay. And it's mildly irritating to you. Sometimes so, or so. Yeah. Okay. So I want you to, to take a moment and see if you can just close your eyes for a second, Bob, mm-hmm. and envision yourself in the energy of fight or flight. Let me know when you're there. There. So now see yourself being sloppy. In that state. And just be curious about what your inner voice says to you about you in this state and your sloppiness. Well, it's critical. Yeah. Yeah. What did, anything in particular that it says to you? Yeah, what, what kind of person would leave dishes for two days in the sink? What kind yeah. of person does that? Yeah. So now, take a couple of breaths in and out. And I want you to see if you can bring into your awareness a time when you were at the bottom of the ladder, when you were in that dorsal vagal kind of collapse where you just couldn't do anything. And now I want you to notice the dishes in the sink and your inner voice.
the inner voice says something more like, I just can't right now. I can't, yeah. <laughs> I can't even right now. I can't even. Yeah. 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 So a couple of in and out breaths. And I want you to see if you can bring into your awareness a time when you felt great, when you were connected, the life, your life around you looked great. You were, you felt good about what you were doing. And I want you to look over and notice those dishes in the sink. And what does your inner voice say to you now? Let's take care of those dishes. Yeah. Or so there, to them quickly. You know, I'll get to them in a minute. But yeah, something. I'll worth, get to them. Yeah. No criticism. Right. No hopelessness. Mm-hmm. So the difference is that you have the exact same thing that is just there, is just its thing. But depending on the state that you're in, you tell a different story. And so our goal is to actually focus on the state that I'm in as opposed to the story that I'm telling myself. Because it's just a story. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So as you're walking clients through this, the, the first, like, uh, walk us through what treatment would look like, or maybe even think of a client that you treated recently and you had success with this. So it started by introducing kind of what you did with Bob now as a demo, yeah, breathing and what you told us about going back and forth between panic or panic light place versus your sift. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just walk us through what the, what the treatment path would look like and maybe um, what success you've seen with it. Yeah. So an ideal situation for me is a client who is, who is interested in this to, and wants to, to do the work because there's a lot of work outside of treatment because you need to take it out and do things with it. And mm-hmm. so, so the first session I would introduce polyvagal theory, giving a little bit of a primer. It takes me about 20 minutes to sort of set up that information about what you need to know about it. We would talk about the idea of choice and connection and co-regulation. We would talk about the ladder. So there's this hierarchy. We would talk about neuroception and we would go into detail on co-regulation, what co-regulation looks like and how we're born with co-regulation. That's a survival tactic. But then we learn self-regulation and now we need a little bit of both in our lives. And then depending on how much time we have in a session and depending on, you know, what we need to talk about with them, then the next piece would be to actually map their nervous systems. And so I, it, it takes about 30 minutes for me to walk a client all the way through all of these three stages. I always start because I, I learned this from Deb Dana. I always start in the sympathetic nervous system. Then I go to the dorsal vagal and then we end in the, the um, ventral vagal at the top, that social engaged place. Cause I never want to leave anybody with that res- residual mm. feeling of being in the other two States. Totally. Yeah. And so then after we have started to map it, we, we, there are a series of questions. I want them, when I'm mapping it, I want the, the client to look at that the experience that they're having in their body. So it's inside. I want them to look at the ex- way in which they experience the world around them. So that's outside. And I want them to look at how they experience other people when they're in this state. So that's between. So inside, outside, in between. 
And then the, the last place that, that at some point we're going to get to is I want them to look at how they experience sort of the sense of, you know, energy of the world, of the universe. Maybe they're a religious person, and so there's more a sense of, of God about it for them. Maybe they're a spiritual person. Maybe they're not. But a sense of the energy of the universe, like, like how do I experience the world in a, a, a much bigger cosmic way um, in any of these three states? And so as they get to know this, then the next thing that I would ask them to do is to go away for the next week or two and to start um, noticing, noticing and naming. Like, oh, I woke up this morning and I noticed that I felt good. And so I wrote down that I woke up at seven o'clock and I was in a socially engaged ventral vagal state. And then the next time they're going to write it down is the next time they notice that they're in a different state. And so now maybe it's nine o'clock and they're in traffic and they're on their way to the office and somebody stops short in front of them and they get, a, you know, an agitated experience of like, oh my God, I almost had, a, had an accident. And so they would say it was nine o'clock and I was in fight or flight. And then the next time they notice it, they're going to, to write down what happened. And you may even at that nine o'clock point, look back till seven o'clock and say, was I in socially engaged um, ventral vagal safety from seven to nine, or did something else happen that I didn't notice? So you spend a lot of time noticing and naming because that mindful way of getting to, to realize that you are moving up and down your autonomic nervous system ladder all day long, we just don't notice it. And that you do it without having to do anything. That, that we are all capable of moving up and down the ladder without having to do anything. So you, you spend a good bit of time in this space of noticing and naming. And then the next step would be for us to begin to map, like what does my social engagement system actually look like? And so we'd really spend a lot of time up there in that top of the ladder of what's like the very bottom rung of my socially engaged safe state and then what goes up from there and and so that you know that when i get to this point when i'm you know feeling good but looking around not talking and not really engaged with other people that i'm at the bottom of my social engaged state but i've got lots of variations moving up there and then we would do the same thing with the sympathetic state. Like what are the layers for me? How do I enter into sympathetic? And then what happens when it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, when it get things get are not working and really just get to know, what do I know about this that I've just never put words to? And we would do that also with the dorsal vagal because every one of them has several rungs. And so, you know, when I absolutely feel hopeless, I'm at the bottom of it, but it starts with me feeling like, I got to get out of here. And so there's some little blend there of the um, fight or flight flight as I move into that dorsal. So then the next piece would be to start to make a, a really clear resource list of what helps me to move. If I know what those rungs are named and look like, I can begin to say, when I'm at this state, when I'm on this rung, this is the thing that appeals to my nervous system. And when I'm on that rung, 
That is the thing that appeals to my nervous system. And we start to create the things that I know I can do for myself. We also start to create a map of the things that we know that we need from other people. Like if I absolutely can't do something for myself and there's somebody in my life that would be able to do this, then or does this, maybe somebody when I'm really, like when I faint, somebody catches me. That's a major thing that, that makes it possible for me to faint. And so I know that I have said that to my partner, that I, know, I need you to know that I faint really easily. And when I tell you I'm going to faint, I mean it. And so he does actually drop everything and catch me. So know what that is. And so then the next thing he knows, the next thing is to put my feet up so that I get a little bit of my blood running back into my head. And then he knows the next thing I need is a cold towel. All things that I could not ask for in that moment, but he knows to do. So we build that list of both what I know that I can do for myself and things that, that my partner or somebody else in my life that, that is going to be in that space can do with me that help to move me up the ladder help to bring me back. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it sounds like I know a lot of people have trouble asking for help. So I imagine that that must come up too in sessions. Absolutely. Hey, I got to ask people to help. Yeah. Yeah. Then we start to get into some of our adaptive behaviors as well. So that we start to blend the the, um, attachment theory and the imago theory pieces into this because it's all intertwined. The way in which we are wired today in our nervous systems is what happened in those first four year, four or five years of development that wired us. And they're, you know, the, the um, unconscious years. And so we've got to somehow tap into it. We know much more about what's happening than we realize. And that's why, why I say this is about befriending your nervous system. This is like your nervous system is there and you are there. So can you get to know it as well as you actually do know it? I no, that really makes a lot of sense because I could see that moving not only myself, but my clients from a, from a stance of I'm a victim of my own nervous system to, okay, I've got, a, I've got this mechanism in my physiology that runs my mind, uh, that at least runs my moods. And, um, and if I can actually know how this, how it works, map it out, and respond appropriately at various points, I've got a chance of self-mastery that uh, wasn't possible before. And I don't mean master as in dominion over, but self-mastery in the, in the positive sense of the word. Because people feel so victimized by their own moods, you know? And what I say over and over is it's just biology. It's just biology. That's it. It's biology and it's happening to everybody. And so are, do you want to get to know your biology? Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. So up at the top of this hierarchy um, is, is, uh, is a ventral vagal, which is, I assume, sort of the feeling of balance and well-being. Yep. Socially engaged. Socially engaged. And at the middle is sort of fight and flight. And that's what that's uh, from ventral to. It's called sympathetic. Sympathetic. Okay. And, and then is, is dorsal at the bottom um, where all else has failed. So it's collapse. 
in the, or at, at worst, at the end of the continuum, it's collapsed. It explains something to me that I always wondered about. I'm, I'm going to do a little self-disclosing, but when I was about 27, I moved out of the ashram I had been living and which gave me all this spiritual meaning and a sense of answers to the big questions of life. And I, I outgrew it, but I also, my, my personal life sort of fell apart at the same time. And I was way down in what we call dorsal, <laughs> dorsal vagal collapse. I mean, not just depressed, but, but, you know, dissociated and, um, and a therapist who was working with more uh, experiential modes of therapy, or more, more, more somatic, had me do an anger, a piece of anger work, because I happened to be having some anger issue with my wife. And he said, here, take this foam bat and beat the hell out of these pillows. And he encouraged me, scream it out, say this, say this. And something in me connected and really went to town with the anger. It was no longer me doing a... a doing a strategy it was boy some primal anger thing connected and till i was out of breath and then i remember sitting there panting watching three months worth of of major depressive episode just lift like like vaporize up into the air and what you're describing sounds to me like okay i went up the ladder something got me up the ladder from that collapse to the fight or flight and then to the dorsal or to the world. Sorry. So you got you up the ladder completely. And that is the, the physical thing. I mean, you must've had some trust with this therapist to be even able to get yourself to actually, you know, take that, whatever it was and hit those pillows, but the physical activity no, then it, I, first I thought it was silly and embarrassing, but I let it. I let myself get into it. Yeah, and the actual physical activity mm. brought energy into your system until you could bring more and more mm. and more. And that's my point: that you cannot get from that down at the bottom of the ladder to the top of the ladder without going through. Yeah. That, so you, could, yeah, you can't get from say that deeply depressed or or a dissociated state up to chill meditation guy without going through some sort of energy mobilization right exactly i love those words energy mobilization you had to be mobilized that's so interesting wow so we're coming up on an hour and i want to um I want to make sure Haley at the end, we'll, we'll have you tell everybody where they can find you or contact you if they need to. But is there anything else you want people to know today that you didn't cover yet? Or is there something that you want to summarize as we do in Imago? Um, what do you want people to know? Yeah. So I, I do want people to know that it's just biology and that the more you notice and name what's going on, the more you are able to be gentle with yourself and have compassion, like to be able to just say, this is just the way that I'm, I'm wired and, and this is how I show up. And to know that our brains are designed to be neuroplastic, that they are, are we can rewire 
wire them. We can change the way that we are. And so we know today that just because you might be um, avoidantly attached to your partners because that's the way you learn to be as a child, you don't have to remain that way, that you can learn a new attachment and you can learn about your nervous system so that you can navigate it. It, it is really the idea of if you know where you are and you know where you want to go, then you can actually chart a path. And by, by getting to know your nervous system, you can know what state I'm in and what state I want to be in, and you know what's the path to that state, and mm. so you just start to build that. Is there anything we have not asked that you think we should have? Um, I, I, you know, I think this is a good introduction. I would, I, I really appreciate the questions about. Um, evidence-based research and whether or not there's other research out there because um, polyvagal theory has been around for quite a while, since 1995. But it is right at the moment having this huge kind of um, renaissance in terms of, of people in therapy are, are all talking about it and particularly people with, with um, clients with trauma. And so I think it is important to make sure that, that if you as a client are looking for somebody who can do this work with you, to make sure that they actually have, have done some training themselves and have, have done the work themselves. It is almost impossible as a therapist to do this work with clients if you have not done it with yourself. Because we often say in Imago that, that you know, we are going to, to hold the space for our clients. With polyvagal, that's hugely important. When, whether I'm working with one person or a couple, I am going to be the energy in the room as well. And if my energy is dysregulated, it will be dysregulating for my clients. And we have to really own that, that if I'm in a bad space, I maybe shouldn't be seeing a client on a, a certain occasion. And so that's on me. And so I want clients to really look for people who really understand this, who are, are, are attuned and able to be attuned with them. Um, I also, um, our listeners, how would you know one if you saw one, like if they're choosing a therapist? And you absolutely can ask your therapist whether or not they um, know anything about polyvagal theory or somatic experiencing both of those are going to cover them really well. Um, even mindfulness, I think, is a good entree into this because anybody who does mindfulness work is doing the polyvagal work. They just aren't using this language. And can this be done virtually? Or I know with somatic experiencing, there's sometimes there's some hands-on, uh, yeah. the kidney area or something like that. Is, this, is it even possible to do somatic work um, virtually? It is possible to do this um, virtually. I have been doing this with clients for the last two years uh, virtually. And, um, you know, I, I love doing it face-to-face. -face. Uh, so it's, it's completely possible, though. And it is really dependent on, as I said, what you're willing to do. That notice and name it piece is probably the most important thing. And if a client walks away and doesn't do that between sessions, then they're not going to have any information to bring back. They haven't gotten to know their nervous system. Got it. And so a, um, if this client is searching for a therapist on Google, that is 
poly, they would look for a therapist who is polyvagal informed. That's is right. That the, the terminology that would be used. Okay. That's right. That's great. And I, and I don't know if I can make a pitch that, that if anybody wants to join a polyvagal practice group, I'm going to um, start one at the end of January. And so that would be an option as well. That was going to be my next question is tell everybody where they can find you or if they want to work with you. You mentioned the yeah. group at the end of January. And will that be available to people outside of Washington, D.C.? Yes, it is going to be a Zoom group. It is limited to a um, uh, to, to 20 people, the first 20 people, and um, there it will meet weekly for six months. Um, in addition, I, I work at the Imago Center of Washington, D.C., and um, can be found there. Um, and um, I am offering the Keeping the Love You Find workshop for individuals in February, and I'm doing the Getting the Love You Want for couples face-to-face um, in Metro DC, um, if you are vaccinated and, and boosted. So they can- Both fantastic workshops, by the way. They can find Haley Hoffman at imagocenterdc.com. And if, in case anybody uh, needs uh, a little prompting, I'm actually going to attend that polyvagal practice group myself, um, both as a therapist and so I can say I've done the work myself. So if you need any, uh, any higher uh, uh, prompting, you're probably not going to get it. I'm going. So <laughs> thank you for your endorsement. <laughs> endorsement. I know, I'm sure I, I may want to sign up too now after this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Haley's already got to get some clients coming in. I would love to have you guys. Does Sounds good. Need to be said before we close, other than thank you so much, Haley. This was very helpful and you, you explain it wonderfully very very organized presentation thank you thank you so much for having me i love talking about this <laughs> see that and it, and it shows truly yeah thank you for sharing your knowledge and your expertise i think this is going to be really helpful for people and now they have resources for how they might want to continue if they're interested in doing this work so thank you so much for being with us and we can't Absolutely. wait for people to hear this thank you you guys are amazing. Thanks so much. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.